Hi, and welcome back to Following the Tracks. I'm Sammy. And I'm Giselle. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you're having a great day. Yes, it is a great day here in Oregon. And I'm in Minnesota. And this is our first Zoom recording of this podcast. Hopefully, we won't have to do it again. You'll get out (laughs) now. I'll just move to Bend. Yeah, yeah, easy. That easy. Just, oh yeah, you know, if you need a new job out here, you can just be a podcaster. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds lovely. Oh, right off the bat. We wanted to give a shout out to Colin Schmidt and Dan and Angela Ray for your lovely donations. Um, Your support means so much to us and we're happy that we can keep making these podcasts and giving people more information about the world around them. So thank you both for your donation. Yes, we appreciate it very much and we can't wait to give you stickers. Yay! Yay. Stickers coming soon. And thank you to all of our friends and family for listening and all of our our audience out there thanks for sticking with us we're having fun yeah this is a lot of fun and oh yeah and shout out to our two listeners in brussels cool yeah hey some crazy just (laughs) international people that's pretty neat that's amazing thank you for listening all the way from brussels i have to give the answer to last week's quiz question oh yeah question okay okay so if you were listening to the last episode at the end we mentioned there was like a trivia question so i gave you three Mm. clues and you had to guess what the animal was people gave me their responses and several people were right so i'll tell you the clues again Mm. and i'll give you the answer so it was i hang out near bodies of water you usually hear me before you see me and the females are more colorful than the males sammy do you remember the answer or do you know did i even tell oh was it the kingfisher Nice, a belted kingfisher. Yeah. So obviously, I love birds, but they won't all be all the all the quiz questions won't be bird themed. So gotta keep you on your toes. Stay tuned to the end of this episode, and we'll give the next clues. What were some of the other answers that you got for that one? Everybody guessed it right. Oh wow! Yeah, even Frank knew. Shout out to Frank, our guest yeah. from last week. She knew right away. She is an avid bird watcher. So for this episode, the research paper we are going to talk about today is called Changes in Climate Drive Recent Monarch Butterfly Dynamics. And the authors are Aaron R. Zalstra, Leslie Rise, Narish Nupain, Sarah P. Saunders, M. Isabel Ramirez, Eduardo Rendon Salinas, Karen S. Oberhauser, Matthew T. Farr, and Elise F. Zifkin. (laughs) Nice. That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And this specific research paper kind of focuses on yeah, how climate change is affecting monarchs and not, not just monarchs, but it, it kind of broadens the scope to insects and how climate change will be affecting insects too, uh, which is really important. Yes. When I was doing background research on monarchs, I completely forgot how interesting they are. Yeah, right? I mean, they're really pretty, yeah. but... They're very beautiful, and they have such a delicate life. And the abstract is as follows. Declines in the abundance of diversity of insects pose a substantial threat to terrestrial ecosystems worldwide. Yet, identifying the causes of these declines have proven difficult, even for well-studied species like monarch butterflies, whose eastern North American population has decreased markedly over the last three decades. 
Three hypotheses have been proposed to explain the changes observed in the eastern monarch population. Loss of milkweed host plants from increased herbicide use, mortality during autumn migration and or early winter resettlement, and changes in breeding season climate. Here, we use a hierarchical modeling approach combining data from more than 18,000 systematic surveys to evaluate support for each of these hypotheses over a 25-year period. Between 2004 and 2018, breeding season weather was nearly seven times more important than other factors in explaining variation in suburb population size, which was positively associated with the size of the subsequent overwintering population. Although data limitations prevent definitive evaluation of the factors governing population size between 1994 and 2003, the period of the steepest monarch decline coinciding with the widespread increase in herbicide use, breeding season weather was similarly identified as an important driver of monarch population size. If observed changes in spring and summer climate continue, portions of the current breeding range may become inhospitable for monarchs. Our results highlight the increasingly important contribution of a changing climate to insect declines. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, similar to our last podcast episode about how climate change is affecting animals that change coat color. Mm -hmm. Seems like climate change obviously is affecting a a lot of animals. Yeah. But so it's just another in this trend of, of climate change impacting our world. Yeah. Very sad. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. And do you want to give a background on monarchs? What are what are monarchs? Yes, let me tell you about monarchs. Okay, so let me butcher their Latin name. Danis Plexippus. <laughs> That's their official Latin name. <laughs> so people people say that the monarchs are the king of butterflies, which is where they get their name. Very royal. Like Sammy mentioned in the abstract, their primary host plant is milkweed. So It's pretty much the only food that they eat. Just to be clear, monarch caterpillars will only eat milkweed, but the adults will eat nectar from any flower. They need it to survive. So butterflies go through metamorphosis. When I was doing this research, I needed to re-educate myself on butterflies. And it just took me back to when I was like seven. And we had like monarch butterflies in like our classroom. And we went over metamorphosis. And it just gave me such a big throwback. (laughs) So they start as an egg. The females lay 500 eggs over their lifetime. Um, And the eggs are on the leaf of the milkweed, which is why milkweed is so important. Then the egg hatches as a caterpillar. And the caterpillars are yellow yellow and black with white stripes. And they hatch as a caterpillar like four to six days after they are laid. And then after 10 to 14 days after that, they're fully grown. And as a fully grown caterpillar, they shed their skin five times. And on the fifth time, they shed and you'll see like a jade green casing, which is their chrysalis. And then they go into their chrysalis, their cocoon. And they're in there for 14 days. And then they emerge a beautiful butterfly. Yeah. It's amazing. 14 whole days. It's a very quick process. Just from a little... Little squishy caterpillar to a yeah. exoskeleton with big wings and yeah, and yeah. it's just like nature is insane how that all it's happens. Crazy. So I couldn't, crazy. I didn't really find. Well, I guess I didn't go like terribly in depth, but I have no idea, and I don't know who knows what actually happens in the chrysalis. How do they turn into a butterfly? Do we know? You know, 
I learned I learned this when I was in college, and let me tell you, it was very confusing and complicated and complex, but super cool. Yeah, we're I just gonna just say, <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna say some magic happens. Magic, the magic of nature. Yes. And then something you know most people know about monarchs is their very dramatic migration. So mm-hmm. they winter in Mexico and they hang out motionless in semi-dormancy to survive the winter. And then in the spring, they migrate north and then they lay the eggs in the southern U.S. And then those eggs go through that whole process and then they migrate north. And then they live two to, th- two to five weeks in the summer up north or the females will lay more eggs. And then each fall, North American monarchs travel from their summer breeding grounds to overwintering locations in Mexico. East of the Rockies, monarchs travel up to about 3,000 miles to central Mexico, whereas shorter migrations are west of the Rockies um, down to the California coast. And then the cycle repeats, and then they hang out in the winter, and then they go up north. Crazy little guys. Yes, interesting fact about butterflies. Mm-hmm. Of the monarch specifically. They are so delicate, their wings have to stay above 55 degrees or their wing muscles won't work. So they are... Like 55 degree angle? No, no, no. 55 degree temperature. Fahrenheit. Oh, oh yeah. Or For their muscles, their muscles to start working. Work. The last background I have on monarchs is their major threats, as mm. we touched on in the abstract, are habitat loss in Mexico from logging and agriculture. Yep. And the herbicides decreasing availability of milk. Mm-hmm. Funny that you mentioned those. This paper, it identifies three hypotheses regarding the contributions to the monarch butterfly's decline. It kind of goes into those. The first and most well-known is milkweed limitation hypothesis, what you were just touching on. Uh, it claims mm-hmm. that the limited supply of milkweed is contributing to their decline. The author of this paper refers to the introduction of herbicide-resistant crops in the 1990s, which it was a great feat for agriculture, but it was a it served a massive blow to the monarchs. The milkweed was very mm. prevalent among agricultural fields and could support more than 70 times more monarchs than other non-agricultural areas, like residential and urban yeah. areas. Interesting. But when the genetically modified crops were introduced, herbicide use increased as farmers could now kill the weeds in their fields without killing their crops. Therefore, caused milkweed wiped out like virtually from all agricultural fields. And this caused the eastern monarch population to rapidly decline from 1994 to 2003. And it's continued to decline since then, just not as rapidly. The second hypothesis for the mm-hmm. decline of monarch population is the migration survival hypothesis. The author describes it as, quote, changes in the monarch population due to failed autumn migration and or reestablishment at overwintering sites. They identify a disconnect in the population counts between the overwinter population and the summer breeding grounds population. The overwintering population has been declining for the last three decades, where the summer breeding ground population has been relatively stable. And because of this mismatch, scientists have launched projects looking into what could possibly be causing this. And it could be because of the lack of available nectar during their fall migration south, mortality from disease, or the illegal logging taking place at their overwintering site. Okay. Because I'm assuming, obviously, during migration from the mm-hmm. south to the north that, but uh, I don't know what the statistic would be, but 
I'm sure tons of monarchs die just from, <laughs> from cars. natural yeah. causes or yeah from like getting hit by yeah, a car is, or something this paper doesn't touch on it but there is a concern so tropical milkweed is an introduced milkweed uh, species in the U.S. Um, it's not exactly like invasive like it doesn't mm-hmm. cause a huge problem like that but it causes problems for the monarchs even though it's like provides milkweed year-round for them it doesn't it doesn't die during the winter times because it's down south. And so oh. that means that parasites are on those milkweeds and be- can be transferred. And because the milkweed doesn't die, it persists. And so, oh. and like in the, in the Midwest, in the winter times, all the milkweed dies. So anything that's on that milkweed dies okay. with it. And so that's one okay. thing that some people are concerned about. And this, this milkweed that you're talking about is, what's it called again? Tropical milkweed. And this is something we as humans have introduced into this into the southern United States? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how like prevalent it is like in the wild. I know like a lot of people okay. like it as ornamental kind of plant. Oh. Um interesting. Because it is it's got like red and yellow flowers and it's it is pretty, but Okay. That's just like a but concern. So it seems it seems like it would be good for the monarchs, but it's actually worse because of these parasites. Yikes! It doesn't seem to be that huge of a concern. It's just like a, don't okay. rely. We don't want to rely on tropical milkweed in the south. Mm. I suppose we'd rather have the common or like a, a native species. You know? Yeah, so. of course. You always want to have the native species. <laughs> always plant native species. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> And so the third hypothesis that this paper identifies is the climate change hypothesis, which claims that the changing spring and summer climate is negatively impacting the monarch population. According to the paper, the size of the summer monarch population has been linked to weather conditions and the rate of development and survival of monarch caterpillars is influenced by temperature and precipitation. With more frequent extreme weather events and a warming climate, monarch habitat is becoming, quote, increasingly unstable for monarchs and native milkweeds at the southern end of the monarch spring and summer breeding ranges. Okay, so from what I've learned about monarchs, obviously they're thriving in warmer temperatures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no animal does well in extremes, like if we have extreme weathers Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, storms and stuff or if it's super hot. But if the temperatures are rising and the monarchs do well in warm, how are they not doing well? Just because of these extreme climate patterns sort of things? That's a great question. Yeah, so why does temperature have such a large effect on monarchs and insects in general? I guess I'll just go into this now, kind of skip forward a little bit. But I did a deep dive back into my college entomology textbook. (laughs) Ooh, tell us what entomology is. Entomology is the study of insects. Oh, Yes. There you go. So I went back into my textbook to review insect thermoregulation. Because that's kind of a a question that I thought too. Mm -hmm. So thermoregulation is how insects regulate their body temperature. Or, no, anybody. Um, (laughs) My textbook is Daily Endoyan's Introduction to Insect Biology and Diversity by James B. Whitfield and Alexander H. Pursehill III. Third edition published by Oxford University Press. So like an important quote from this book reads, At unfavorably high temperatures, an insect is severely limited in the extent to which it can cool itself. 
So unless water is readily available to insects, most have to escape the heat by hiding in the shade or in a cooler space. So like when I was doing monarch tracking in the summer times, if the temperature got too hot, we would mm-hmm. stop we would stop releasing butterflies to track because they would just then go find shade because it's just too warm for them to be out. There's the honeybee. This is unique. Mm-hmm. They cool themselves by collecting nectar. After collecting nectar, the bees regurgitate the fluid from their crop, otherwise known as their honey stomach, and hold it in their mouths while they fly around. And the fluid wow, evaporates is... in their mouth and cools their head, which then like absorbs heat from the rest of their body. Oh so my monarch- god, that is so bizarre. Do that, <laughs> but I thought it was like a little interesting tidbit to include. It's just like I had no idea that honeybees did that. It's pretty, pretty neat. I. That is so bizarre. I love it. Yeah, and then like on the other hand, there are metabolic ways an insect can warm itself up. But some, like the monarch, are ectothermic, so they rely on the environmental aspects for warmth. So they bask in the sun. That's the primary way that they warm themselves up. And mm-hmm. as we talk more about the importance of temperature to the monarch in this paper, you'll be able to kind of connect the dots and see why there is such a big effort that the monarch migrates thousands of miles and why a changing climate can have a big effect on their survivability. Sure. Well, interesting facts. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I, I knew obviously that monarchs lay out in the sun and mm-hmm. that, and then they cool themselves by being in the shade, but... Did yeah. not know that about honeybees and their regurgitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like monarchs have a range of temperature that they want to be in, and and if it gets to be too hot, they don't like that. And yeah. So the warming climate, I mean, because if days are warmer for longer, like, and they're they have you know less time to be out and about laying eggs and drinking nectar or eating and whatever mating, and the less time they have to do that, the less you know eggs they can lay and. They're just not going to sure. be as productive as they as we would want them to be. Yeah, they just yeah. I mean that makes sense. I just if, with all this climate change stuff, I didn't know if you know there's any silver lining that <laughs> if any anybody can benefit yeah. from a slightly warmer climate, but they can't. It makes sense. It's yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, some that might sad. like it, but. I mean, apparently reptiles are supposed to get bigger as the climate warms, so that might be a good... Uh, oh my god, so you're telling me we're going to have, like, ginormous reptiles? Like, yeah, you know, tell start telling people that, and maybe people will be like, oh, you know, maybe we should do something about this climate change, because I don't want a 50-foot garter snake running around yeah. my backyard. Alligators are already big enough. Can you imagine yeah. if they were bigger? <laughs> no. No, thanks. So recycle and yeah. use less water. <laughs> well, we do also, not want giant alligators. Vote. <laughs> yes, yeah. true. So looking back at the hypotheses, you know, what could be contributing to the monarch decline, scientists want to figure that out. So to look at how each of these hypotheses have affected the eastern monarch population, the authors collected a bunch of data that was recorded throughout the annual migration cycle starting in 1994 all the way to 2008. The relative importance of different drivers varied across this period, specifically the use of herbicides. So the scientists split their analysis into two time periods, one from 1994 to 2003 and then 2004 to 2018. 
The results from their number crunching and data analysis found that for the 2004 to 2018 period, there's strong support for the climate change hypothesis with comparatively little support for the other two hypotheses. Okay. It, kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, they found that the weather during the spring and summer seasons had the biggest effect on the summer population size compared to the late winter population size and summer crops and herbicide use. Okay, say that again. Um, so they found that the weather during the spring and summer seasons had the biggest effect on the summer population size when you compare it to like summer crops and herbicide use. Okay. There's a great graph oh. <laughs> that I'll, I'll include on Instagram. Nice. When they looked at what affected the early winter population size, they found that the peak summer population size was positively associated with it and that the autumn nectar availability and forest cover at the overwintering site had little effect. So because of the high correlation between summer and early winter population numbers, they ruled out autumn migration mortality as being a large factor in the recent population decline. The researchers also found that a moderately high correlation between the beginning and the end winter population of the monarchs. This finding proves that overwintering mortality is also not a main driver of population decline. So is that kind of, kind of do you kind of get that? I don't. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot. So it's like yeah. the summer population. So they looked at the winter population size and the summer population size. And they found that the herbicide use mm-hmm. didn't have an effect on them. So it's really just what's happening in the summer, the temperature, the spring and the summer. Yeah, well, it's like, yeah the spring and summer weather that's going yes. on. So the, okay. the, the weather, the extremes, you know, storms, tornadoes, yep. whatever is happening. Yep. That's affecting the population of the summer, obviously. But then yeah. that affects the winter population because if a bunch die in the summer, they have to migrate mm-hmm. down. Yeah. So, like, it's been shown that summer monarch counts are highest after a warm and dry spring, uh, one that's on average milder than oh. your regular spring. Um, and opposite of that is lower recorded summer counts when there was a cold and rainy spring. Uh, When we talk about summer weather in the northern part of their breeding ground, they do better in warm and wet summers, which actually contrasts the monarchs in the southern breeding grounds. High summer temperatures in the south have a slightly negative effect on the breeding population, and this indicates a possible shift in their breeding range because that southern area is kind of starting to lose its touch of southern hospitality. Oh, no more. Howdy, ma'am. Yeah, no, it's it's no. get the heck out of here, you <laughs> So the so you were saying that the monarchs do better in a more milder spring. Yeah, when the spring is more, milder than average, the summer population size is higher on average when there's a warm and dry spring. So like when it's not the usual amount of rainy and right. But yeah, yeah. like you know. Because then they're, they're kind of like, they're back, they get back up there, and they're like, right. oh, it's time. Oh, to... let's go. <laughs> I guess maybe they they can start uh, laying eggs and, and just doing their thing sooner. So yeah. More time to get stuff done. Yeah, that makes sense. But like, I mean, historically and continuing, aren't our springs usually wet and cold? 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like that's historically, if they're like that, is that climate change then? If these monarchs are struggling to have the population in in the spring, do you know what I'm do you know what I'm getting at here? Like, if they need a dry, a warm, dry spring, but we always have cold, wet springs. Well, it's like it's they don't need it; they just do better with it. Okay. Oh, they just yeah, obviously produce more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and like with climate change, it's not climate change isn't only like a warming temperatures on average it's also severe weather like more crazy storms, weather winds yeah. yeah crazy storms just weird temperatures right unpredictableness of it yeah yeah and so that bad for the dainty little butterflies yes the poor little butterflies <laughs> they're british because they're the, mo- they're the monarch <laughs> and they're the monarchs <laughs> i'm not gonna give anyone a british live. accent <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I won't right. humor anybody with my British accent. <laughs> I would love to hear it. No, but Ben always quotes from Harry Potter. Returning to the paper, Zalstra and the other authors find that between 1994 and 2003, there were large effects of spring weather on the summer population. Now I'll remind you that this is the, also the time period that the herbicide glyphosate was widely used across agricultural fields, causing a great decline in the abundance of milkweed. The researchers oh. found that though the use of the herbicide was negatively associated with the summer breeding population size, the, quote, magnitude of glyphosate-related effects was smaller than expected. They mm. claim that unless more information presents itself about possible factors affecting the population at that time, they cannot give a definitive answer on what the primary factor of population decline at that time was. I want to include this part at the end of the results section. Quote, Our results, which are based on the most comprehensive set of systematic survey data currently available, reveals a consistently strong effect of spring weather conditions on the summer population over a 25-year period and a growing importance of summer weather. So it's kind of crazy. It's saying, like, though the glyphosate, the herbicide use, did have a negative effect on monarchs, it wasn't nearly as much as what people had thought, mm. which like me growing up and me studying monarchs, like I was all I was told by experts that yeah we need to plant millions more milkweed ramets to save the monarchs, pretty much like yeah. it, mm-hmm. that's the limiting factor, which it is limiting in a way, but this paper is very comprehensive and it it they say it, it's it's the spring weather that's really affecting okay them. yeah I mean like. Growing up in Iowa, obviously we have a lot of cornfields, soybean, so much, so so many yeah. soybean yeah. fields. You know, I always knew that herbicides have a negative impact on a lot of things on our soil and on our animals. And so I was always mm-hmm. taught, you know, that it has a negative impact on the population of insects. So it's interesting to see in those specific years when there was more use that it didn't have the effect that they thought it would. When I, yeah. yeah, always just assumed these chemicals were hurting animals like this. I suppose it's, it's good. I mean, I mean, because like the weeds that were in the fields created habitat for more than just the monarchs. It, you know, it was. Yeah, lot, absolutely. Which also then creates habitat for pests that eat the crop too. Yeah. And we need our. Like a, yeah. We, we need, need the soybean. Yeah. yeah. So like. Um, so it's just like difficult, you know, to. To weigh the two. 
So now this glyphosate, glyphosate, now this herbicide glyphosate doesn't have as much of an impact or it's not even widely used anymore. No, it's still, so it still is. Yes. Thanks oh. for bringing that up. No, it is still widely used. So it's just been consistent. Um, oh, okay. And it hasn't like increased and it has also hasn't decreased. So it's just between 1994 and 2003, milkweed was wiped from agricultural fields and then it's just stayed gone. Like, oh, it hasn't oh. Really continued to increase. It's just, it got all the milkweed all wiped out at once. Oh. Like, yeah, over, like, multiple years, but sure, but quite suddenly. Okay. So, like, today, it's it's not having a... It, it's not having... It's, like, still... It's not any worse than it was 10 years ago. Okay. Like, it's not creating it. a worse effect than 10 years ago. It's just... It, it, it had its effect. It took out a lot of milkweed. Okay. And then, that, and then it's just that. And okay. now it just keeps the milkweed out of the agriculture. Well, field. obviously, it sucks that ha- happened, but... Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's like pros and cons because (laughs) (sighs) I mean, we have so many people. We need to have those crops, Mm -hmm. and but then we're just making it harder on ourselves because we're ruining the world around us. But anyway, so it happened. It's (laughs) done. We can get into a whole thing. Yeah, that's there's a yeah, (laughs) that's a whole thing. We know that due to climate change, average global temperatures are due to rise. Because of this, the author notes that the southern part of the monarch's breeding range will fall out of the optimal range for monarchs and probably cause the population to continue its decline. However, what is more uncertain is how precipitation will affect them, as the cumulative rainfall between 1994 and 2008 has increased. It could be beneficial in producing more milkweed, but if it deviates too much from historical records, the effects are unknown. Um, and monarchs oh. don't monarchs don't fly when it's raining out. They, I was going to ask that, but I didn't know if that was a dumb question. <laughs> but they are they're lightweight, so how would they if it's raining? Zylstra and the rest of the authors sign off this paper with a really strong and important paragraph that would mean more if I didn't paraphrase it. So I'm just going to read it to you. I think okay. it's really it's really great quote. Insect declines in temperate regions have often been attributed to habitat loss and agricultural intensification, whereas until recently, climate-related stressors had largely been viewed as a secondary or exacerbating factors. Yet, weather can play a pivotal role in driving not only insect population dynamics, but also their declines. Climate change thus poses a considerable threat to insects, especially because near-term weather conditions cannot be manipulated and climate change cannot be abated as readily as other stressors. Although the mechanisms and magnitude of climate-related effects on insects are likely to vary regionally, as we demonstrate here, changes in temperature and precipitation regimes are occurring worldwide, threatening not just monarchs but insect populations on a global scale. Understanding the extent and relative severity of these threats is paramount to mitigating current and future losses. End quote. So... After reading that paragraph, basically, I'm understanding it as if there were things more in our control, we could help the monarchs, you know, if like planting more milkweed or, you know, stuff like that. But it's all, their decline is all attributed to extreme weather, pretty much. And that's having an effect on their breeding population. 
yeah, like not all of it, um, but it's... But more than know, we originally yeah, thought. More than we first gave it, gave credit to it. It's the main... Yeah, it's the it's main... The biggest, the biggest driver for population decrease. Yeah, yep. So, so it's like if we were using a harmful herbicide that killed our monarchs, we could switch herbicides. Or if it was, you know, we need more area for them to be we need more plants for them to eat we could plant more milkweed but it's like we're so deep into climate change that we can't yeah. just reverse yeah it's things. not like we can just we can't change the weather yeah i mean we did change but humans changed the weather that's we true we did climate. in um, a bad way in a bad way and we we can we have a very limited amount of time left to, to do it though so dark question here yeah Obviously, every animal has its place in this world. And if Uh we lose something, it can have a drastic effect on everything that we learned in the first episode. You know, killing wolves has an effect on our lakes, like Mm -hmm. all of those. So what happens if our monarch population is nothing? Like what would happen? If they just go extinct? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is the monarchs, monarch butterfly doesn't have a huge ecological role. Okay. It's not really food for anything and it doesn't really eat anything. It just kind of does its own thing. Okay. And um, they don't pollinate much. They don't do a lot of pollinating either. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And so that's like what people always say, like, but they pollinate. And they're like, actually, not really. Like, a little bit, but not a lot. And so, yeah, like, what happens? Nothing. Nothing really happens other than we lose an important species that has intrinsic value and does this really cool migration that we don't see in, like, any other you know this is a very unique behavior that's exhibited by this species right and obviously you know they're very well known everybody knows what a monarch butterfly Mm -hmm. is and well studied and stuff like that after discussing this with giselle i decided to ask the author dr aaron zylstra what her thoughts were on this my question was if climate change is the main driver for the monarch butterfly population decline is it worth it to keep investing in projects that restore prairies slash plant more milkweed her response was as follows, quote, Good question. I definitely think there's still a lot of value in restoring and or creating habitat for monarchs. While we found climate change to be the most important driver over the last 15 years or so, it's certainly not the only driver. For monarchs to persist, it'll be important that monarchs have milkweed and nectar resources throughout their current range and maybe also in places that could become habitat with a changing climate. Plus, there are other benefits to investing in the activities you describe. Increasing abundance and distribution of native plants that can provide habitat and food for other butterflies, insects, and vertebrates would be hugely beneficial for the entire ecosystem. Finally, doing these kinds of activities is a great way to engage the public, to increase awareness of insect declines and the importance of natural areas, and to allow people to feel invested in conservation efforts. Yeah, okay, so they don't, nobody really eats them? No, because they're toxic, so... Oh, I learned that in my background, I'm sorry. Another fun fact, they're toxic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the caterpillars, the more milkweed they eat as a larva, as a caterpillar, the more, because milkweed is toxic, it has toxins in it. Oh, okay. When they eat that milkweed, the body stores the toxins that comes out of that milkweed, 
And so then when they transform into a butterfly, when they are no longer eating milkweed, when they have a, they have a different mouth part. They don't, they don't chew up leaves anymore. They, they drink nectar. Oh, oh. Yes. And so. The little thing. Yeah. That comes mm -hmm. out of their face. So milkweed, yeah, milkweed's not really important to them at that point of their life other than like laying eggs on it. Yeah. So once they accumulate all this toxicness in their body, then when they're an adult, that's why they're like orange and black. They want to let predators know, like, hey, don't eat me because I'm going to make you, you know, sick if you do. Yeah. And so they're not a, they're not a tasty meal. That's kind okay. of their defense. I know, like, butterflies and moths, obviously they have those patterns on their wings that are, you know, make them look like eyes and stuff. I yeah. just thought that was purely, you know, defense. Well, but it some is of them. Also, well, I know that some, like, moths and, well, are moths yeah. toxic? I guess. I don't know. I guess, well, there's, so there's also, like, this commonly mistaken butterfly, like, it, there's a viceroy, and it's commonly mistaken for a monarch, except it's a little bit smaller, and it has similar patterns and coloring on it. Okay. It's not toxic, but hmm. it's, so it uses mimicry as its defense. Wow. Um, against predators, they're like, hey, you shouldn't eat me, because I'm toxic like the this monarch butterfly. Oh, tricked ya. Yeah, they're they're trying to trick the predators into not eating them. Oh, spicy. Or like the like moths and butterflies that have big eyes on them. Yep. That's to like spook predators like, hey, I'm not a butterfly, I'm a big animal that has big eyes. Classic having these ginormous eyeballs that aren't eyeballs. So tell us about like, so it was last summer that you were doing a project in Minnesota for milkweed habitat area? Yeah. Yeah. I was working for a nonprofit called the Monarch Joint Venture, and they wanted to look at how suitable ditches on highways in Minnesota, how much milkweed they're producing. And they were focused on the milkweed limitation hypothesis. So okay, how, so they wanted to see like, how much milkweed is in our ditches and is it a viable option to plant more milkweed in them and give these monarchs like more habitat mm -hmm. and some people will say well why would you want to plant milkweed in ditches and attract monarchs yeah. to areas where there's cars driving around and you know i asked that same question when i was in college to a monarch expert and she told me well yes like, there are going to be some that die then from car collisions. Uh-huh. But that milkweed is... The milkweed... There's more milkweed and it's going to be more productive. So it's going to still produce more. Oh, so it's worth the loss. Yeah. So there's going to be some loss with it. But it's going to... It's benefits outweigh the loss. Okay. And why the ditches? Why not just fields somewhere? Yeah. Well, so, like, ditches are government property. And... Mm -hmm nothing's really being done with ditches you know they're just there yeah you're not building houses in ditches you're not planting crops in ditches mm -hmm. the ditches are just a ditch they're they're the crust of the highways <laughs> um, <laughs> so crusty so, so crusty but no so like so why not you know use that land because if you add the land all together like of ditches it's like you get you get a lot thousands of acres worth of land in minnesota yeah and, and it's not obviously not being utilized for anything else it's not being utilized for and, anything else so why not plant some more milk yeah in it and make it more i know there's always pushes to plant more native wildflowers yeah. Yeah. in ditches because mm -hmm. it's easy to put them there and but now when you like think about this paper, in. you know, they're saying <laughs> planting more milkweed isn't going to like help that much. Yeah. 
it kind of makes you rethink all these efforts that have been so focused on planting more milkweed. Yeah, it's kind of sad. And I know, like, there's a lot of wildlife people that are like, why do monarchs always get recognition? And why do people plant prairies for monarchs? And it's like, well, you know, and and monarchs aren't that ecologically important, so why are we focusing so much time and money on them? And it's like, well, it benefits so many other species to be putting cropland back into CRP. Or like, you know... Mm putting prairies on what was once a cornfield. And, you know, it's not just monarchs that benefit from this. It is so many other species, which is why I think it's important to keep promoting monarch health and more habitat, giving them more habitat. Because I think the limitation of milkweed is still important. It's not like, it's not the most important factor, but it's still an important factor. Yeah. And I mean, if we have the means and the resources and apparently the crusty ditches to <laughs> plant milkweed, we might as well. Might as well, right? Like, yeah. And does anybody else use milkweed like monarchs use milkweed? Yeah, actually. Not exactly like monarchs, but there are a couple other butterfly species that will eat milkweed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a tussock moth. But Mm-mm. they're very furry caterpillars, and they're super cute. And I Aww. highly recommend looking them up because they're adorable to look at. But they will eat milkweed, and mm. I'm sure that they also reap the benefits from the toxicity of milkweed. But they're not <laughs> as they're not pretty when they're a butter or when they're a moth. And that's ugly. okay. We yeah. like ugly butterflies <laughs> and moths. Too. They're still important. <laughs> No, exactly. And so I, they just don't get as much recognition as the monarch butterfly does. Yeah. I feel like the monarchs, the king, the king of butterflies. I like to say, say queen, they, you know. Oh, the queen of because, butterflies. Because, I mean, it's just like, the, it's the females who are doing yeah, all the Yeah, true. Work. The monarch. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth. You know, it's funny because when we were, I spent so much time out in prairies doing monarch work that I could tell you, you know, it, you you get a male and a female monarch right next to each other, and you can tell the difference because males have two oh. glands or black dots on their wings. Oh. And so you can tell the difference that way, but since I spent so much time outside, you can tell the difference just in what they're doing, like how they're flying. No way. Because the males are just, they're drones, they're searching for females, they're just kind of flying along, doing circles. Men. And it's funny, yeah, no, they're just looking for females, and the females are, like, focused, they're like, okay, eat, rest, lay eggs, repeat. You know, they've got a plan, they know what they're doing. But sometimes a male will come swoop in and pick them up, and then the males will literally carry the females away. (laughs) Oh. Um, Which is pretty cool to see, but yeah. I love that you know all of this. Uh, yeah. But the males, the males are funny. So when a male finds another male, though, a lot of times you'll see this in other butterflies as well. But they do a little spiral kind of helix dance up. Oh, and my like they God. They flutter around each other and they go up because they're both trying to get each other. Oh, they're, they're like males. Fighting. They're like kind of checking out each other and they're just like, male. <laughs> but the oh females won't do that. So they'll, they'll either like accept it. Or they'll fly away like, oh, don't you're like don't touch me. I don't want to meet or something. Oh my god! So the females are just like, yeah, get out of here. Yeah, I'm, I I gotta get I gotta get food and I gotta rest. Yeah, yeah. And the males are twirling. The males are twirling. <laughs> they're focused on. They're like eat here and there, maybe take a couple breaks, but like mostly they're just soaring and they're scanning the prairie for females. Oh. Yeah. 
So if you're outside in the summer uh-huh. and there's a bunch of monarchs, you can you can tell which ones are the males. Yeah, and the males will literally go after anything that moves. <laughs> it sounds crazy. Wow. I they've gone after birds. They've gone after other what? They've, like they go after birds. How would that work? <laughs> <laughs> they can't lift them up and carry no, them away like another no, butterfly. The birds are just like. The the heck are you doing? <laughs> like, and the birds will just kind of like fly away. They're like, what the heck? This is so interesting. And yeah, it's, they're weird. Um, wow. Okay. That's so cool that you can tell them apart. Uh, I didn't even know they visually look different. But can you only tell the, the actual visual difference if they're, if you're up close to them? Yeah, that's, I mean, you can try spotting it as they're flying it's pretty difficult but usually okay. like or you don't have to compare side by side you can just have one and be like oh it has two dots on it or it doesn't have yeah all oh, right yeah okay interesting um yeah. wow this paper you know they focus on monarchs but their their main kind of goal is to convey the importance of insects and how climate change is affecting insects so, like, why are insects important? Why should we care? You know, they're passed yeah. to us. We could do away with mosquitoes, right? And ticks and right. all those kind of yeah. things. But ticks. Insects make up an immense amount of biomass on Earth. They actually, more than more than mammals, more than... Wow. But, like, just, they are the biggest order of mm-hmm. animals, most biomass on Earth. Okay. They are an, an extremely important part of the ecosystem as a food source for many species, which are the right. food sources for other species. You know, they're the bottom of the food chain. They support everything above them. And they also are really important decomposers. They feed on dead plants and animals, so we don't have to, yep. you know, have rotting plants outside and rotting yeah. animals outside. Take care of it for us. They, they break it down <laughs> a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, climate change isn't just affecting the polar bears and the snowshoe hares, but it's all life on Earth, even humans. And the decline of the insect populations will cause major food shortages in the ecosystem and in the human food chain. (laughs) If we lost, yes. (laughs) Because the insects are extremely important pollinators. Like, we can't have food without pollinators. Yes, we have to pollinate. It's already a problem. Yeah. Uh Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Save the Bees movement has been going on for years. Which, do you want to know a funny thing? So, like, it's a little little debated. So, it's not debated that we need more pollinators, but it's debated on what kind of pollinators we need. So, the Mm -hmm. honeybee is a European insect. So, it's not native to the States, to North America. Right. And so it's like, you know, save the honeybees. But it's like, should we save the honeybees or should we save our native mm-hmm. bees? Yes, because my parents have bees, but they're Italian. <laughs> they're Italian bees. Uh, they like the pasta. Ah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> I like to put parmesan on they're... my honey. And that terrible <laughs> Italian accent. <laughs> or I liked your Italian accent. And you can't see Sammy, but she's got the hand gesture going. I am not going to give anybody my accent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know what you mean, though. Yes, because they are from Europe. Mm-hmm. And so they are. But we do need them, obviously, yeah. to pollinate. But then we have other pollinators as well. Yeah. So it's like, maybe we just save both for the time being, you know? Let's just save everybody. Save everything. Stop burning fossil fuel. And um, yeah, and elect people who will actually do something about climate change. 
Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. That would be nice. Uh, That would be lovely. All talk, Um, no action right now. Okay. So to sum that all up, I strongly dislike house centipedes and people don't like mosquitoes (laughs) and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But all these insects, we need them. They're the bottom of the food chain. So if they're knocked out, everybody above them's knocked out. Mm -hmm. So yeah. It's important that they have their habitats and that they can migrate if they're migrators and stuff like that. Also, mm-hmm. on the topic of milkweed, I would like to give a shout out again, once again, to my mother and father. Aww. My mom always, always taught me when I was young to spread the milkweed seeds yeah. to get more milkweed everywhere. And we have so much milkweed in our front yard in the in the ditch that goes down to our lake. So they're doing God's work. One thing that I was taught in undergrad while I was doing monarch research and on monarch research projects was the importance of managing your milkweed. Not just growing oh. it, but... Okay, tell us how to manage our milkweed yeah. for our listeners with milkweed. At In the Midwest, you're going to want to trim it so that at the end of June and then early September, I want to say, so that it's producing new vegetation. Monarchs love new vegetation. Mm, who doesn't? Because <laughs> it's so, um, it's been sh- like proven in, in some research papers that female monarchs prefer to lay eggs on the top third of the milkweed. Oh. Because of the new vegetation. And while I was out doing habitat work, uh, this last summer in Minnesota in the ditches, like ditches get mowed. And so, mm-hmm. and a lot of the times you'd see some that are just like half mowed. So, you know, for mm-hmm. safety and, and for cars pulling off the highway. But uh, you would see these tiny two inch milkweeds, just new sprouts with six eggs on them. And you walk 10 mm-hmm. feet further from the road and you've got three feet tall milkweed with no no eggs on them. Oh. These the females just love new vegetation, and that's the funny part too. Is like these little tiny two inch milkweed sprouts are not going to be able to provide nu- enough nutrients for six caterpillars. Oh, um, but also the caterpillars they don't they don't stay on their larval uh, milkweed like the one that they were. Oh, on. they move they to move another around, one. Like, yeah, three or four to three or four different milkweeds. So it's like okay, but still like they need as when they're a neonate when they just hatch. They need a certain amount of, you know, nutrients. And when six mm-hmm. neonates, tiny caterpillars, pop out of eggs on neonates. a tiny two-inch milkweed, it's not going to be able to support all of them. So it's kind of funny how, how much they So do like they it. need to have do they need to have these short milkweeds near other milkweeds? Yeah, so that's also been another study that a PhD student I worked with in college was looking at. Like, how many times do they abandon a plant for a new one and... Do females prefer like single milkweeds or milkweeds that are in a bunch? And I don't okay. exactly remember what the outcome was, but it happened. <laughs> oh. uh, they, they, they looked at <laughs> it, and I don't remember the results. But um, when I I did my own study when I was an undergrad, and I looked at larval preference for new milkweed versus old milkweed, and I found that there is a preference for new milkweed of the neon the caterpillars too. They also prefer new new vegetation and okay, but it didn't cause it doesn't give them more nutrients. It's just easier for them to eat because older milkweed leaves have a larger cuticle on them, 
And a cuticle is just like a waxy layer on top of okay. the leaf to prevent from like moisture loss and also like prevent caterpillars from eating them because they, you know, the milkweed oh. don't want the caterpillars to <laughs> eat. Yeah. Them, so. Okay. That's fair. But like it didn't change the outcome of their health. They still were good to go, I suppose. Yeah. They just yeah. really like. Okay. Healthy little boys. No matter what they were given, they still turned out good. It was just, yeah, they they just like it way better. Yeah, okay. So so plant plant new, spread the seeds, plant, plant new plant milkweed. milkweed. They like new Once vegetation. it gets, you know, to be pretty old and gangly, cut it in half and let it grow new. Let it okay. grow new sprouts because then the monarchs will go crazy for it. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but when does milkweed bloom? Uh-huh. Is that yeah, word? So, but you know when it's got all that fuzzy yeah, stuff so it's kind of it's the peak is like in the middle of summer i believe i feel like i should know this my mom would be disappointed in me <laughs> and so okay. you're gonna get well you're gonna get the the seeds in later summer yeah spread the pods that's yeah. what my mom does yeah, well that's funny. Like when i was <laughs> last uh last summer when i was in the ditches in the ditches <laughs> <laughs> you cannot say it like that. Last summer when I was in the, I was in the ditches. And, uh, <laughs> uh, no. But uh, I would collect some milkweed pods I'd find, and then I'd bring them back home so we could have some milkweed in our front yard. I didn't tell my parents, though. Oh. Nope. Or they surprised when it popped. Uh, they'll have a lovely surprise. It's nice. Oh, I sure. mean, yeah. Like my parents, we hardly like mow our lawn mm. or, you know, get rid yeah. of the weeds yeah. in quotes like milkweed like it's the the animals need them they're native like don't mow your lawn stop stop mowing your lawn get rid of your lawn one yeah it should be plants plants. (laughs) plant plants and trees trees plant things yeah yeah i agree they plant our native flowers anyway now time for this week's riddle slash quiz i think i should call it a riddle it's gonna be a who am okay so this week's Who Am I riddle is, you will only find me in the high mountains, maybe while you're hiking a 14er. Ooh. I'm territorial, so if you get too close to me, you will hear me bleat, scream, and whistle. I'm often misidentified as a mouse, but I am actually closely related to a rabbit. Hmm. Who oh, am I? Closely related. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> so... You can send us what you think this is or listen in for Comment next time. Comment on the Instagram post for this episode. Yes. Yeah. Or, yeah, send it to us, text us, yeah. and we'll give you the answer next Heck time. Yeah. And may not be a bird this time. May not be a bird. Maybe it's an insect. I'm, I'm not only into is it birds. An <laughs> is it the monarch butterfly? Could be. Monarch butterflies can bleat and scream. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you all so much, and we're having so much fun doing this. You know, I haven't said this yet, but I think it's time. My dad told me when I was a couple months ago, I was having a spell of what do I do with my life? And I I have that often. (laughs) But I was asking him, I always wish I would have done something with wildlife. But I'm in a different career path, obviously. If you don't know, I'm in design. And I said, I always think about switching. And he said, sometimes you can get what you want out of your interests, maybe not in a profession, but, you know, focus more on your hobbies. And this has given me that 
satisfaction, this podcast. But yes, it's very good for me. It makes me feel like I have, I mean, I don't feel like I obviously have as much knowledge about wildlife as you do, but I have random things in my brain and I like learning about it. So this is my way I can learn more and I can give information. Yeah. So thank you everybody joining us in this and making one of my interests into a very good hobby. My microphone cut out after this, but I wanted to say thank you, Giselle, for sharing that with us. I think a lot of people will resonate with it. Now, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify or Apple iTunes. Yes, you can leave us reviews. Thank you for those who've left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. It's very, very kind. And if you'd like to see any of the graphs or figures that go along with the research article we discussed today, you can follow us on Instagram at Following the Tracks and see our latest post. We will be posting a few of those figures and graphs that are included in the research paper. Instagram is also where you can get updates on when we will be posting our next episodes. A few quick thank yous before the end of this podcast. Thank you to Dr. Aaron Zylstra for answering all of my questions and for your quick responses. Thank you to Dr. Kelsey Fisher and Dr. Stephen Bradbury for being my undergraduate mentors and research advisors and for teaching me just about everything I know about monarchs. Thank you to my parents, John and Kim, for continuing to support me and my passions. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far and would like to help us keep this podcast going, you can donate to our Patreon page by searching Following the Tracks on Patreon.com, and we may be sending stickers soon to those valued patrons. Got a doomsday prep. Harry Potter. One last audio note for our biggest supporter, Dan Ray. We hope you get better soon and you have a speedy recovery.